Love my steel products. That's S-T-I-H-L. Quick reminder, and you can find them at steelusa.com or steeldealers.com. And you will find more than 10,000 dealers around the country. So there's one in your neighborhood. What does steel bring to the table? How about everything to keep your property up to speed? They have a myriad of chainsaws, mowing and planting tools from trimmers and lawnmowers to zero-turn mowers to edgers and sprayers, cleaning up the garage. I was doing that uh, about a month and a half ago. All kinds of blowers, pressure washers, vacuums. I got a new hand vacuum that's super cool. All kinds of different accessories. They have the best products on the market for any job that you're trying to get done. And their battery-powered products are second to none. Super powerful, long-lasting. Steel's the best. You got to check them out. And go on the site at SteelUSA.com, and you will be literally blown away by the number of great products that they have. Make sure you do it today. SteelUSA.com, SteelDealers.com. Remember, S-T-I-H-L. This week on the Drew Goodman Podcast, a massive walk-off home run for Alan Trejo. Drew runs into the great Mr. October, Reggie Jackson, and our special guest, statistician and researcher Doug Marino, takes us behind the scenes on the Rockies television broadcast. So I'm just trying to add to the conversation, you and the other guys are just there to enhance what you guys are doing. And I also try to think about what the fans are looking for, what the fans will consider important and what they'll find interesting during the game. Subscribe to the Drew Goodman Goodman Podcast, wherever you find podcasts. And tell a friend, this is the Drew Goodman Podcast. Hey, everybody, welcome in to show number 111. Glad, as always, that uh, you spend a little time each week with us and uh, we have a good time. A little bit later on, Doug Marino, who I've spent a lot of time with in broadcast, especially the Rockies through the years. We're going back to the Nuggets and college football. Uh, he's an outstanding researcher, statistician. They get given the name statistician, but he's far more than that. And Dougie will join us uh, a little bit later on. You know what's pretty cool? Um, I realize that I have a, a really neat job, especially for those people that follow sports. I mean, if you're not into sports, maybe you could care less about you know the guy who's a, a broadcaster. But I'm privileged uh, to do what I do. I often say that. And um, one of the neat things is you meet a lot of interesting people, particularly in the world of sports, but sometimes uh, beyond. And the other day, one of those iconic former players was in town. In fact, he's in town right now because as I tape this, it's Wednesday morning, getting ready to head down to the ballpark as the Rockies conclude their mini two-game set with the Houston Astros. The Yankees were here over the weekend. I'll get to that in a moment because the guy I'm referencing that I ran into will always be associated most notably with the Yankees. Yet he actually now works for the Houston Astros because he's very close with their owner, Jim Crane. And I'm referencing Mr. October, Reggie Jackson. And um, Reggie spends about half his time 
actually with the club, with the Astros. He was with them uh, the last couple of years, in fact. So he got a ring last year, uh, another one for Reggie Jackson with the Houston Astros when they uh, when they won it all. But uh, I saw Reggie in the clubhouse a few hours before the ball game on Tuesday went up to him and, and reintroduced myself. I had met him and interviewed him in the past, but, you know, it's not like he's going to remember uh, somebody from many years ago. Uh, after all, I'm sure he's been interviewed about a million times. Anyhow, uh, we, we kind of started conversing. I uh, reminded him that uh, we had played hoop together uh, in Aspen when uh, I lived up there just getting going in my career and Reggie used to frequent as so many uh, stars did and do uh, Aspen and, and worked out together at the Aspen Club. And so we got a chuckle out of, out of some of those memories. And we just started talking. And he said, hey, let's go downstairs. And so we went downstairs to, uh, you know, to go out on the field. And then it started sprinkling a little bit. Jeff Houston, my partner, joined us. And we went down by the bat rack. We ended up talking to Reggie for literally about 40 minutes. And he regaled us with so many different stories. And we started talking about his time at ASU. Now, if you don't know this or perhaps recall this, Reggie's from Eastern Pennsylvania. He was a great, great high school football player, baseball player. He also played basketball in high school. And he was recruited by in football by the likes of Alabama and others at the time, did not want to, in the 60s, go to the Deep South and play football. Some of those schools hadn't even broken the color barrier yet. He was recruited also by Oklahoma, turned down Oklahoma. His high school football coach was close with Frank Cush, the then football coach at Arizona State. So he accepted a football scholarship to go to Arizona State. And they were aware that he was a tremendous baseball player as well. But he went there to play football. And he was telling us the story that after a spring practice in football, he, on a bet with some baseball players, he was not yet on the team, said, I can make that baseball team. And they didn't know perhaps a whole lot about Reggie Jackson. So he asked Bobby Winkles, and Bobby Winkles was very much aware that Reggie was a great baseball player, but he wasn't yet playing both sports there. Bobby Winkles said, come by and, and take batting practice. So Reggie Jackson, after football practice in the spring, took his helmet off naturally in his shoulder pads with football pants on and still football cleats on. He got in the batter's box. He said he popped up a couple times, fouled a couple off, and then proceeded to hit like a dozen balls over the right field wall in Tempe. And they gave him a spot. He said, on the baseball team, only if he had a 3-0 and could maintain a 3-0 GPA because they weren't going to allow somebody to play two sports. That was a rule unless you had a 3-0 in the classroom. Well, they checked his transcripts. He said and he had a 3-2. His first year, because no freshman could play varsity, he played freshman baseball, still playing football. His sophomore year, he was one of the defensive captains in football because back then he had a position both ways, running back and safety. And in baseball, 
that sophomore year, he broke out and he ultimately became an All-American and one of the not only great players at Arizona State, pretty clearly, but also maybe the best player in the country, certainly the best collegiate player in the country. And I'll get to that draft in a moment. Here's another aside. At the time, prior to Reggie Jackson, there had not been an African-American player in baseball at Arizona State. So he was a first in that regard as well. So fast forward to the draft. He goes number two overall to Kansas City, the KC Athletics. The New York Mets famously or infamously had the first pick. And as many of you know, I grew up a Mets fan. Now, I don't remember this draft because I was too young. But I do remember the draft from studying it (laughs) once I got much older. The Mets took a 17-year-old catcher named Steve Chilcutt because they said they had a need behind the plate, despite most people realizing that Reggie Jackson was the player to be taken first. So Reggie went number two. The Mets took catcher Steve Chilcutt, a high school catcher, I believe out of California, who never reached the big leagues. And Reggie Jackson went on to hit 563 home runs. Pretty amazing. There were so many stories in there, and you know I'm not going to sit here and recount uh, every one of them, but he's lived, naturally, a fascinating life. It's pretty cool when you have the nickname Mr. October. And so I, I look back, by the way, and I said, that's right. What, what did Reggie do in the World Series? We all remember that that game in 77 with the Yankees when in three different pitches, three successive pitches and three at-bats. He hit three home runs. But overall, he played 27 World Series games. He had 10 homers in those 27 World Series games, which is one heck of an accomplishment. If you extrapolate that over a full season, right? Think about the numbers you're uh, you're coming up with. And he had an OPS of 12-12 in the World Series. He drove in 1,700-plus runs in his career. I mentioned the 563 uh, homers. It it was uh, an amazing career. We're talking to Reggie also about strikeouts. Now, Reggie struck out more than any player in the history of the game. That is a fact in his 21 seasons. But he lamented that the strikeouts now are at a ridiculous level. And he said, we celebrate guys that, that hit a buck 90, but they hit some home runs. And that's okay because maybe they walk some. And he said, what happened to getting hits? And so, again, you look back at Reggie's career, and yes, he struck out more than any player in the history of the game. But Reggie also hit 262. 262, folks, currently would be about 15 points better than what the average major league hitter hits. And also, in the course of 21 years, I mean, he played a lot of games. He struck out at a 22.7% rate. Do you know that's lower than what the current strikeout rate is in baseball today? 22.9 is what it is as uh, we stand here in, in the third week of July. So Reggie Jackson actually struck out at a lower percentage than currently um, 
is going in baseball. I just thought it was interesting to hear him lament that. The guy who struck out more than anybody in the history of the game, so strikeouts are way too high, and we're celebrating guys that, you know, that hit below the Mendoza line or right around the Mendoza line because they can hit some home runs and their walk rate is higher than average. So there were other uh, interesting topics, but uh, it, it was fun. I mean, Reggie Jackson, still in great shape. He's 77. And I asked him before we departed, I said, Reggie, this may sound crazy, but, you know, Jeff Houston, myself, you know, we, we watched you play. But what about kids today, big leaguers today? Because sometimes we feel like, do athletes today know of the athletes that came before them? And some do. Some are aware of the history, but not all. Or maybe their historical knowledge begins 20 years ago and has no idea of what took place 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago, with maybe an occasional exception. But he did say that most people, most players do know who he is. He says, you know, when I go past a visiting dugout, when I'm on my way to the batting cage, he said people, players will will not only call out, but introduce themselves and that sort of thing. And I thought that was great because if you're a baseball player, heck, I mean, if you're a sports enthusiast of any kind, but if you're a baseball player and you're in the big leagues and just because you're 24 or 26 right now and you don't know who Reggie Jackson is, shame on you. So, again, I was encouraged to hear that uh, Reggie is recognized still um, by guys who are 50 plus years younger than him. But he's an all timer. Reggie Jackson. So that was a fun visit. Uh, going back to Reggie's. Former team, one of his former teams, I had a thought jump in my mind just now. I think all those arguments and, and battles with Billy Martin had to be separated in the dugout. That was great theater back then. Uh, anyhow, uh, Reggie's former team, the Yankees, were in town over the weekend. And they always provide great theater, even if they uh, are not a great team. And as they are currently comprised, though they wear the pinstripes and they have the iconic logo on their hats, they are not a great baseball team. And even for me, when they get Aaron Judge back, they will not be a great baseball team. They can't score. They're awful offensively. It was cool to see the Rockies take two of three. Every crowd was a sellout, Friday night, Saturday night, Sunday afternoon. And the series was punctuated by a marvelous game on Sunday. And a, a footnote to this, I suppose, um, review of the series and the game on Sunday is that one of the great things about sport one of the beautiful things about sport and being a sports fan is even in a season where your team is not good, where your team has a poor record and the Rockies have the worst record in the National League as we speak, baseball in particular still provides moments where you can get out of your chair, moments where you can smile, moments where you say, wow. Sometimes they're individual, and sometimes they're a compilation of individual exploits which turn into a great team victory. And that's what we saw on Sunday. The Yankees were ahead 3-1 to one in the eighth inning. 
and C.J. Crone against Clay Holmes, who's a, a good closer. And he came in to get the final out of the eighth inning because the Yankees and Aaron Boone felt they were in a little trouble. And he faces C.J. Crone, and Crone lines a ball with the bases loaded over the center field wall for a grand slam, and he puts the Rockies up 5-3. to three. And moments later, the Yankees tie it up at 5 in the ninth inning, the game goes to a 10th inning. The Rockies keep the Yankees off the board in the top of the 10th. And with the California tiebreaker rule, I don't want to say it's automatic, but oftentimes if you throw up a zero as the home team, you're going to win that game with a runner at second base to start the inning uh, in the bottom half of the inning. The Rockies did not get that uh, winning run home in the bottom of the 10th. So they go to the 11th. The Yankees score twice in the top of the 11th. And you feel like, and I, I did as I was broadcasting this, like opportunity lost. Rockies are now going to lose the baseball game. But they did not. With the runner at second base, Nolan Jones comes up and he promptly hits an opposite field 450-foot home run to left center to tie it up at seven. And then Alan Trejo, who had not homered all year, comes up and he hits a walk-off game-winning homer. This ball's hit in the deep left. Come on. It's going to fly. Alan Trejo with his first of the year. What a time for it. And the Rockies win it 8-7. I mean, it was great theater. It was... It was why we love the game of baseball. And even though this has been a most difficult year again for the Rockies, that was a moment in front of a sellout crowd against the vaunted New York Yankees. It was cool. Here's a side note also about that uh, home run by Alan Trejo. He had not homered all year, 120 at-bats into his season, and he hits his first home run, and it is a walk-off homer. And so it got not only me thinking, but the folks at, at the Elias Sports Bureau, what's the longest period for somebody to start a season in terms of at-bats and have their first homer be a walk-off home run, as we witnessed with Trejo on Sunday? And they were able to document this since 1995. So it's not going way, way back, but it goes back, you know, almost 30 years. And the longest situation like that was the great Tony Gwynn. Tony Gwynn in 1996 had gone 180 at-bats to start the season and then hit a walk-off home run to beat the St. Louis Cardinals. And um, at least in the last 29 seasons, that's the longest anyone had gone hitting their first home run having it be a walk-off. It's pretty cool that it's the late, uh, great Tony Gwynn. One other note about that Yankee game you may not be aware of on Sunday. The Yankees, who began in 1903 and has played thousands and thousands of games, they had never, as in it's never happened before, they had never lost a game by giving up two two-run leads in the eighth inning or beyond. I was shocked by that. You had to figure as many games the Yankees had played that at some point in time, you have one of those days where you cough up a lead in the eighth and maybe you cough up a lead that you reacquired in the ninth or maybe in extra innings. Never happened before. Sunday at Coors Field. Pretty amazing. You know what? Tuesday night against uh, the Astros was a good game also. 3-3 after one. And then uh, the only other run that scored after that was an Ezekiel Tovar triple. 
to drive in C.J. Crone in the middle innings, and it was a bullpen day for the Rockies, and after Jake Bird gave up three in the first, the rest of the bullpen threw eight shutout innings, which is a new Rockies record. And the Rockies, as we uh, tape this again on a Wednesday morning, have won three or four uh, on this homestand. The Rockies, we know, aren't going anywhere. As I said, they still have the poorest record in the National League. But the last several days in front of huge crowds, there was more than 43,000 last night. In fact, almost 44,000. They've played entertaining uh, baseball, and it's why we love sports. So with the crowds, uh, after last night, it's seven straight nights at Coors Field, or days, that the venue has had more than 40,000 people. And I know many of you who are cynical, and understandably so, say this is crazy. How how do 40-plus thousand show up for a team that has the poorest record in the National League? And we know that we live in an area that is taken on well over a million people the last decade or so. There are people from all different parts of the country that support all different teams. We know certain teams always have large fan bases. We also know we are a destination um, for summer travel, for winter travel clearly as well, but we're talking about the summer here because Colorado's flat beautiful. And so people build their summer vacations around, hey, I can catch my team at Coors Field and then head to the mountains. So there are always going to be a fairly large number of fans rooting for the opponent. I'm not going to lie to you and tell you that it's not disappointing at times when the Dodgers are in town and Rockies fans are challenged with trying to out-cheer the throngs of Dodger fans. And we certainly saw that over the weekend with the Yankees in town. I mean, if I'm going to be honest, you know, this is just off the top of my head, you know, viewing it from the booth, it seemed like the crowd was at least 60% or more rooting for the Yankees. And that stinks. It's But I get it also. You know what? You want better, you have to do better. And the Rockies are mired in a, in a five-year run uh, since going to the playoffs in 17 and 18. That has not been good. So some people are staying away. I understand that. That's their prerogative. And right now, the ballpark, especially when the Dodgers were here, even with the Angels here because of Otani and Trout, uh, the Yankees over the weekend, it's it's populated um, significantly by fans of the other teams. But I'll tell you what, if you're a player and you're out there and yeah, at home, you want everybody rooting for you, but there's still energy when you look up and and there's hardly an empty seat. It's really, uh, it's really pretty remarkable. One other note on the, on the Yankees, and I, I mentioned this is not a great Yankee team. And for those people that follow baseball closely, you realize it's not a great Yankee team, even with Aaron Judge back. Uh, Josh Donaldson on his last legs, in fact, he tore his calf in the series against the uh, Rockies, probably done for the year. They have age. I mean, Giancarlo Stanton, still dangerous at the plate. After all, he did hit a couple home runs in the series, a two-run shot on Friday, a three-run shot on Saturday. But when you watch him move in the outfield, he's a DH now. He's a full-time DH. You know, Glaber Torres is solid, like Anthony Volpe, their their young shortstop. DJ, one of my all-time favorite Rockies, what an impact he had. His first uh, couple of seasons in New York, third in an MVP, fourth in an MVP vote in the American League. DJ's not having a great year. He did have a good series over the weekend. This is not a, this is not a great Yankee team, even when they get back 
Aaron Judge. And they really, truly could miss the postseason for the first time uh, in years. Tovar versus Volpe. I don't know if you did that in your head while you were watching the series. Ezekiel Tovar, the 21-year-old, terrific shortstop for the Rockies, growing in front of our eyes every day, as I've often said. And Anthony Volpe, the 22-year-old Jersey kid who grew up a Yankees fan, their former number one uh, pick out of a out of a Morristown High School across the river. Who would you rather have? Now, very quickly, and this is, uh, I'm going to try to be unbiased here. Volpe runs better than Tovar, slightly. Volpe's got some pop. Tovar's got a lot of pop. I think he's going to be a 20-plus home run guy. Defensively, I like Tovar better. I, I think he's got better range. I like his actions better. I think Volpe's going to be a really good player. Hitability-wise, you know, right now, again, it's basically it's both of their rookie years. Tovar's hitting in the 260-plus range, and in the case of Volpe, he's hitting below 220 right now. As I said, I think both are going to be good players. But if I, ha- if, if I could choose one, only one guy going forward for the next 8, 10 years, I'm taking Ezekiel Tovar. Just thought I'd throw that out there. All right. Looking forward to my conversation with uh, with Doug. I talk to him every day, for goodness sake. But Doug is uh, a guy that loves baseball, loves sports in general, and has a unique view on baseball, shall we say. And I start out our conversation by talking to him about his hair. Because if you have followed Rockies baseball through the years, and we show Dougie all the time in the booth, Doug, you know, Dougie's got a wonderful, beautiful family. Um, but we kid him. You know, he's, he's a leftover hippie from the 60s, even though he didn't grow up quite in the 60s. And Doug's favorite place to be at is a widespread panic concert. And years ago, it was a, it was a dead show. And so he's always worn his hair long until he shocked us about two months ago and showed up in the booth like, oh, your next door neighbor who's a doctor or a lawyer or some other professional uh, guy. That's how we start our conversation. Good friend and uh, longtime compatriot uh, in the booth in a number of sports, but uh, most notably in baseball, Doug Marino. All right, man, you've gotten a lot of questions over the years because I think what you do is, is fascinating. You're involved in sports. A lot of people don't realize you produce as well, uh, produce Broncos preseason games, produce a lot of college product. Um, but, you know, maybe in these parts, you're best known as, uh, you know, the researcher, stat guy, whatever people, you know, call you. I call you a researcher because it's not not just a stat guy. But I think this year, maybe more people have come up to you and said, Doug, what happened to the hair? Is that fair? <laughs> that is fair. That is fair. I get a lot of funny looks, a lot of, hey, I didn't recognize you. And, uh, you know, some, uh, do you want to do my taxes? So, uh, <laughs> so I get a little, a little of everything. Uh, even I'm still getting used to it myself. Yeah, well, let me clarify uh, for those wondering out there. Um, you do not want Doug doing your taxes. Um, he's good with numbers, but I just don't know if you want him doing your taxes, though he does look like, you know, your your accountant around the corner. How often do you pass a mirror and go, who is that guy? Every time. Every time. I'm still not used to it. So I'm going to go get it trimmed this afternoon for the first time. Oh, man. that's Don't, don't think I won't bring that up today uh, on the broadcast. You know, 
uh, everything is low hanging fruit for me. You understand? I am aware. Yeah, there you go. So when when people do come up and ask you, and and you've been you and I've been together for, uh, I mean you know better than I do. I, I can't even remember the first time we ended up working together. It's probably going on 30 years, I'm guessing, somewhere in that neighborhood. Somewhere in that neighborhood, me and you, our first day, your first day in the Rockies booth was my first day in the Rockies booth. So that's 22 years, I believe. Right. And I think we, we did stuff before that, though, I believe, correct? Yes, we did. We did some nugget stuff, uh, college things up at CU and uh, other things along the way. So when people ask you, Doug, you know, what is it exactly that you do? We see you, uh, you know, on television every night. We hear the guys, you know, talk about you and, and that sort of thing. When people ask you, so what exactly do you do? How do you respond? Well, I say that uh, I am lucky enough to get to sit up in the booth with you and be it Philly or Huey every night and, uh, Every day I prepare for several hours before I go to the ballpark. I have a pile of sticky notes, the things that I think may come up that night during the game. And then obviously things happen during the game that needs to be reacted to, and I need to find out the significance of it, if it's a historical significance, a single game thing, uh, maybe just a milestone in a guy's career. Uh, so I'm just trying to add to the conversation. You and the other guys know exactly what you're doing, and you could do a great job without me. But if there's something I can add to the conversation, I'm there to do that. That's, I'm just there to enhance what you guys are doing. Well, you uh, you obviously do a great job of that. But you also, because we've been yet, been together so long, you kind of know how my brain works, oftentimes handing me something before I even uh, – think to ask you because you kind of know where I, I want to go with a particular uh, record or particular guy or group of guys. That's exactly right. Yeah, I know what you're looking for, and I know what Huey's looking for, and I know what Philly's looking for. And those guys kind of, statistically speaking, they have different ideas about what they like and what's important to them. So I prepare just a little bit differently for each of those guys. Uh Billy's a little more on the analytical side, and uh, he's a little more on the old school side. So I try to, I try to make sure each guy has what they're looking for, instead of necessarily what I'm just looking for. And I also try to think about what the fans are looking for, what the fans will consider important, and what they'll find interesting during the game. So uh, I'm looking out for you. I'm looking out for Philly. I'm looking out for Huey. I'm also looking out for the fans. And yeah, we're we're old school you and me in this regard is that you still again you nobody has more post-it notes you should have like a an endorsement with post-it because you have every color under the sun and and you go through literally uh hundreds each each ball game and the reason i say that's old school is i as you know in in this area in this air era i should say where you can do the game and score the game you know, online or put together your own, you know, fancy electronic scorebook, I still write out all my notes and I write, you know, it's a big book, but I, I write everything down because that's my comfort level. And I would guess for you, you've been doing it so long and the, the computer certainly helped out the last 25 years, but um, you do it the same way. Absolutely. The computer is indispensable. It gives me a much greater area of facts that I can track down in a much quicker way. When I first started doing it, I would cut out the box scores every day and the article from the game, and I would put them into a notebook. 
and then I would just go back and compile my own stats. And we got the internet, and that kind of changed everything and made everything much easier. Uh, but I am still a pen to paper guy as well. I, I color code my scorebook just like you. I keep a pitch count with slashes and lines. Uh, and with the sticky notes, I think it really helps me. I see the information, great. Then I write it down on the sticky note. Now I've seen it a second time, and now I can internalize the information. And now I kind of know it. So when you ask me, I don't even have to go track down the sticky note. Hopefully I just know it again off the top of my head. Now there's something, I was going to say, there's some things that take place, a lot of things that people would not know about. And one of them is you'll hand me, and you hand me a ton of notes, and and you hand Huey and, and Spilly a ton of notes, but there, I have this little way of if I don't get to a particular note, but I like it, um, because, you know, maybe it's on Anthony Rizzo. The Rockies just played the Yankees, and maybe it's an interesting note on on Anthony Rizzo. Um, and Anthony Rizzo swings at the first pitch and grounds out the second. Well, there's we're now on to the next guy, right? So I will kind of wait, circle my hand as if to say, "Hey, you know, let's let's revisit this, right?" And but you have this stack, and you take it, and I I can't watch what you're doing, obviously during the game. But somehow, next time Anthony Rizzo comes up, you found that thing again, and I don't understand how you do it because you have a stack of like fifty on each side of your computer. Each day before the game, I I take out all of my notes, which are in you know all kind of crazy random order, whatever order I found them that morning, whatever order I I put them together, uh, and I lay them out by the batting order. So the top guy on the lineup is probably going to be Profar tonight. The second guy is probably going to be Tovar. So I, I know each guy in the stack is in the batting order. And then let's say it was, you know, Anthony Rizzo is 11 for 55 versus left-hand pitching today. I know he's pitching better than that, but uh, I'd write that little number down in the corner. So I have that number, so then I'll update it. Next time he's 11 for 56. Take out the calculator, figure out the average, boom, it's updated. Next time he comes up, you've got it right there, and it's accurate enough to get. Yeah. How's your brain work short-term and long-term? I've often said this, and and you know this about me. I'm a really good test taker in that tonight when, as as we tape this, the Rockies are are opening up a little two-game set against the world champion Houston Astros. I'll be able to tell you, you know, all sorts of, probably half irrelevant information on Kyle Tucker who comes up or Chaz McCormick, who's the player of the week in in the American league this week. And, and honest to God, Doug, you know, this about the next day I'll, I'll, I'm exaggerating a little bit. I'll know who won the night before. I may have to think about what the final score is, but I let it all go. Are you good about remembering, oh, yeah, I remember that ball game in the seventh inning in 1987 when so-and-so came up against this. My brain, I don't remember any of that stuff. Yeah, you know, after doing this for 30 years now, it's my 30th season of Major League Baseball. They do all kind of run together. I'll say that after a while. I remember some things like that from a long time ago when I was a kid growing up. I wasn't watching every day or I was paying attention in a different kind of way than I pay attention now. But I don't remember specifics I, as well as I wish because we see so many so many games. It does kind of run together. So as you know, I will double check just about everything because if I hand you a note or if I hand one of the other guys a note and that note's wrong, 
It makes you guys look bad. And if that you guys are looking bad and it's my fault, I'm not going to be there too long. So I double-check everything. Even if I'm sure that I know it, I go back and I double-check it just to be just to be sure. Yeah, but, I mean, you know what? I learned – it's taken time, but I learned a long time ago, first of all, none, none of us – we're all uh, – you know, no, nobody's infallible. Number one, and and number two, I think it humanizes. For instance, in what I do, you're going to ad lib for three hours. It used to be a lot longer, right? Um, every night, and God love the pitch clock, right? Um, but you're going to ad lib, and not everything's going to come out as eloquently as you would like. Well, it's the same thing. Every every number, sometimes it may be, hey, you know what? Actually. Somebody else also did this, and we didn't realize it. I mean, that that's kind of that that happens. Yeah, we strive to be accurate and everything um, naturally that that you pass along, but it, that's almost impossible. It really is. It really is. There's so much information out there every day. There's no way that me or you or anyone else can lay their eyes on all of it and know everything and be a hundred percent accurate. And what gets me is when I'm lying in bed late at night and I jump up oh and i and i think of something that i should have thought of while the game was going on but the next morning i read something in the paper or online something that i missed that's what really burns me <laughs> yeah but and that's the beauty honestly doug we we cover everything and you know most of my living now is made in baseball but you know you and i have worked a ton of football together over the years you mentioned earlier going back to the nugget days a ton of college basketball you still produce a lot of football and basketball there's something, and I love those sports. Love them. There's nothing like football because you work all week for one game, and it, and you only play a handful of games as we know in football. So it's big, man, and the atmosphere is big. But there's something about baseball. There's so many different um, stories that emanate from this sport, and we all look at it differently. Like you love, and we've talked about this on the air. You love, you know the the history of baseball and I don't mean the recent history I mean talking about a hundred plus years ago um, and that's one of the things that's fascinating about the sport in how you take it in how you consume it yeah and everybody's different if some people only know it now you know younger people they don't really know the history of the game very much at all uh, when I was a kid though that's what really got me going with baseball I loved it first time my dad took me to the game and I walked out the ramp and I saw the lights and the green grass I was in love with it I started reading books when I was five six years old about the history of baseball and it just really enthralled me and it kind of parallel the history of America with the history of baseball it kind of runs together in my mind I can think of you give me a year and I can tell you you know what happened in baseball that year and what happened in American history that year it kind of it kind of works together for me the characters of the game from so long ago you know guys like Rube Waddell would go go to the fire station and ride the fire trucks every time he went into a town, you know, and, and guys, they used to have to drag out of bars to, to go pitch in the game. It, you know, the, the characters of the game back then, you couldn't get away with that stuff these days, but those guys were amazing. And the fact that they performed any athletic endeavor, never mind at a high level, is incredible to me. I just love, I just love all the characters of the game from, from way back when. Well, you kind of reminded me of something because I, I think many people know that you are uh, a, a huge, huge music guy. Uh, I know saying music guy can be all-encompassing, but it is. I mean, you know the history of 
uh, of music, especially certain forms of music, really well. And you reminded me of something. Uh, the he, for me, he's a he's one of the great songwriters um, of the last fifty years, at least, maybe of all time. Uh, Billy Joel and Billy Joel's song "We Didn't Start the Fire" parallels history, but within the history, the U.S. history in the last you know, 80 years, if you think back to the lyrics, there are many baseball players mentioned in those lyrics. And you're probably going over it in your head right now. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. In music, there's a lot of uh, songs with baseball references. My guys, Widespread Panic, they love baseball. They've got songs with Willie Mays in them. Uh, think about Simon and Garfinkel, Joe DiMaggio, you know, they... There's there's all kinds of different guys, different people sing songs about baseball because it's part of everyday life in America. It has been for 150 years. Yeah, and there, there's one like this: is a guy I like you don't you don't like him as much, even though he's a Jersey guy. He's a legend, though. You got to give him that, and that's Bruce Springsteen. Yeah. But but I always but I've always had this one problem with Bruce's song when he talks about glory you know glory days the you know great song glory days because he said he could throw that speedball right by you i have an issue with that dougie it's not a speedball he could call it a heater a fastball i mean it's we've never we've never heard anybody other than bruce refer to a fastball as a speedball. no you're exactly right you're exactly right i'm with you i'm with you yeah i know it's a little different all right the other day, and this just popped in my head also, Alan Trejo hits a dramatic walk-off home run. All walk-off home runs are, are somewhat dramatic. It comes against the Yankees in a, in a sold-out Coors Field. He had not homered all year. So, Doug, is that one that you had already thought of and said, okay, has a Rocky ever hit a walk-off home run for his first home run of the year this late in the season? Or who was the last player in baseball to do it? Is it hard to find such a thing? Is it even possible to find such a thing? It is hard to find such a thing in such a brief period of time because he hits that home run, and we're probably off the air in 90 seconds or so. Oh, yeah, you're not going to do it in real time. No way. No, I can't come up with it in real time. What I was thinking of at the time, though, was the – Walk the go-ahead grand slam by Crone in the bottom of the eighth, and then the walk-off homer in the eleventh. I was thinking of have the Rockies ever hit back-to-back go-ahead home runs that late in the game? Not back-to-back, but uh, you know, in 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 the eighth inning or later. And I was I had not come up with it yet. Uh, and then the next day, I saw something from the Elias Sports Bureau which wasn't exactly what I was thinking of, but it would have been perfect. But there's no way, once again, I can come up with it in real time. It was the first time in the Yankees' history, which was back since 1903, that they had two runs of two or more runs, two leads of two or more runs in the eighth inning or later in a game and lost that game. Hey, dude, Hey, hey dude! I know you're going to hand me that later. I already have it in my book. <laughs> but you know what? Isn't that amazing? Doug, when I read that, I was like, holy shit. The Yankees. This isn't the Arizona Diamondbacks who've been around since 1998 or the Colorado Rockies since 93. This is the New York friggin' Yankees. That had never happened before. Thousands and thousands of games for 120 years, and that had never happened before. And we're sitting there, and we see it. It's, you know, it's it's 
it's historically significant in baseball, and uh, and we were there to witness it. So, yes. Yeah, it's super cool. We get to see cool things all the time. I know, and and that's the thing. And I, I in my monologue earlier, I was talking about even in a in a difficult season, even in a tough year, even in a bad year, however you want to describe it. You know, when you're twenty some odd games below five hundred, it's a bad year. It's rough. <laughs> we we all know that. But within that year. And it's maybe the be- one of the beautiful things about baseball. It's like a, a, every day is kind of a new little mini chapter. We're going to go to the ballpark tonight. You don't know what you're going to see. And that's what we were talking about Sunday afternoon uh, with, with the Rockies and Yankees. What stands out, in addition, I'm sure, to, to Sunday because it's so recent, what else stands out as moments this year where you go, wow, that was pretty cool? I tell you, one thing that sticks out to me was the uh, in early June, against San Diego, McMahon hit that home run. It was raining. It was raining really hard. We were all waiting for him to pull the tarp. Rockies are down by one, going to the bottom of the night, and McMahon comes up, and it's just a deluge. And he came up and hit the game-tying home run into the upper deck in right field. And as soon as he crossed the plate, they pulled the tarp. It was like something out of a natural. It was really it was amazing. And then we had almost a two-hour rain delay. Nolan Jones came out and hit the game-winning homer with two outs in the bottom of the ninth. Was uh, was fantastic. That that game really sticks out to me. Yeah, that that one that was wild. And again, because I I said this earlier, if you asked me to recount exactly what happened, I wouldn't have been able to do it. And this just happened last month. But I do, you know, I do remember, you know, I remember McMahon. It was is when he caught fire. Um, how about how about Nolan Jones? When you're watching, I mean, you're a Rockies fan, just like we are. We want to see this club do really well, and it, it's it's far more exciting when when they're winning and so on. But now, as they transition to some of these younger guys, what do you got on Nolan Jones as you watch him? You know, he he's impressed me. He had the third hardest throw from the outfield earlier this year. I don't know if that still stands up, but uh, you know, his arm in the outfield is is amazing. And the length of his home runs is just fantastic for a, for a rookie. He has won 483 earlier this year. He's still the third longest homer in all the major leagues by anyone. That guy, when he hits him, man, they go. He's, uh, he's got a lot of talent, both, both sides of the ball. So he, he, I think, has a bright future. He's, you know, got some ups and downs like all rookies do, but, uh, I think the Rockies are really onto something with him. Yeah, and it's not to say that that you don't get excited when you have a guy that's an established star, uh, you know. And we've seen established, you know, guys establish themselves as stars with the Rockies, from Matt Holiday to you know, clearly Todd Helton. Larry Walker was an acquired star. Uh, you know, Troy Tulowitzki we saw grow up and become a star. And for me, and I, and I'm soliciting your thought on this. There's something really special when a guy grows before your eyes. Like, you know, two years from now, Dougie, we may be looking at uh, Ezekiel Tovar and going, yeah, this dude's one of the, you know, three or four best shortstops in baseball. He hits 20 homers. He plays uh, an unbelievable shortstop defensively. He steals a few bags. So when it when it all blossoms in front of you, it's pretty neat. Do you get the same charge out of watching somebody develop as opposed to, oh, they acquired somebody that we know has a long and distinguished resume? Absolutely, because those guys, you've heard about them for a few years now. They didn't just show up in the major leagues one day. You know, and We're paying attention to what happens in the minor leagues, and we're following those guys. And we hear about them developing, hear about them developing. And, and 
any team is going to have guys that they think are going to be stars and, you know, they never pan out. They never get through the minor leagues or it just doesn't work out for them in the majors. See a kid like Tovar, he's only 21 years old. To me, that's amazing. Yeah, he's 21 years old. He's, he's third in the league in defensive run saved by shortstops. You know, he, he prepares better than Tulo in his rookie season offensively right now. He compares better defensively to Trevor Story in his rookie season. Story had an amazing offensive rookie season. But he, he compares favorably to all the best shortstops in Rockies history in one way or the other. And, and he's only 21 years old. He's younger than any of those guys were when they made it. So absolutely it does. Yeah, it's uh, for me, I, I've always said that. And, and even when we're looking at the start of a year and, and all the prognosticators um, you know, say this team should do this and this team should do that, and they never can fully account for how quickly a guy arrives. Look at Arizona. I know they've struggled a little bit of late, but Arizona's being led by a lot of youngsters, and, and most notably Corbin Carroll. And it's not like people weren't aware of Corbin Carroll's talent, and they many felt had, that that kid had a chance to be a good player down the road did anybody predict that Corbin Carroll would be an MVP candidate in 2023 probably not and that to me is the fascinating aspect or one of the many fascinating aspects about watching a season unfold I completely agree that's why the Cincinnati Reds are so exciting this year as well they've got they've got you know plenty of youngsters in their in their lineup they got the shorts De La Cruz they got they got Steer they got McLean they got a bunch of young pitchers. Nobody would have thought you could bring all these kids up during the course of the season and have your team in first place or right there in the middle of July. They're exciting. They're young and just fun to watch. Yeah, and I know that they are fun to watch. And, and of course, we were just there. And I know how intrigued you are by Cincinnati. And the reasons are, are twofold. One, what you just said. They have a lot of exciting young talent and more coming, evidently. And you lived in Cincinnati for a while growing up. And I have noticed, Doug, though I have not made verbal mention of this until right now. See, folks, we have a television right next to us um, in, in our booth. And we have games on. I mean, if you know, if the, during the NFL season, guess what? There'll probably be an NFL game on. But during, the, you know, for five months, most of the time, you know, unless the Nuggets are in the playoffs or the Avalanche are playing a big game, it's going to be another baseball game. And Doug handles all that. And I've noticed that there are a lot less Mets games being shown behind me and a lot more Cincinnati Reds games being shown behind me of late. Yeah, it's, like I said, it's fun to watch. They played a series against Milwaukee. They didn't do too good, but uh, but they're right there. They're in it. And there isn't a person in the world who had the Reds you know, even over 500, never mind right in the playoff on this time of year. So. No, the, 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 Red, the Reds are a blast, and that goes back to what we were talking about a few minutes ago. When, when young guys come up, even if they were heralded in the minor leagues, and then they emerge and they uh, do otherworldly things, especially the way De La Cruz is doing otherworldly things, it's pretty cool. Speaking of otherworldly, uh, do you have your, your, your arms fully around – what this cat Shohei Otani uh, is from a historical standpoint? It's crazy. It's it's crazy. He could, he's a top five pitcher in the American League, and he leads the whole entire major leagues in home runs. 
Nobody's ever done anything close to that. You know, people compare him to Babe Ruth. It's a completely different period of time, but even Babe Ruth didn't do the things he's doing right now. It, it, at first, I wasn't sure and I wasn't sold, but over time, he just gets better and better. It's not like he's a flash in the pan. It's not like he did it for one season now. He keeps doing it. He keeps doing it. He keeps getting better and better, and it's amazing. Yeah, it's it's amazing just the raw numbers and and two things. I, I think I mentioned this on the air not too long ago. I I did a, more of a deeper dive on Babe Ruth as a pitcher, and I I was reminded a little bit because I guess I had forgotten. You know, Babe Ruth. It, it was a longer period of time where he really was terrific with Boston on the mound. Yeah. However, um, still at that point in time, the dead ball era. Correct, Doug. And and secondarily, and Babe Ruth was is always going to be an all time great, but he played well before there was anyone of color playing, and that has to be factored in as well. There was there was no one from Latin America. There was obviously um, no one uh, in the United States. It was way before the color line was was broken and integration took place in Major League Baseball starting in 1947. So, you know, that that's a factor for me uh, without question as well when you look at what Otani's done. And he's doing it under pressure because every day people are speculating Will the Angels hold on to him as the trade deadline looms closer? Will they trade him? And last night, again, as we speak, he hit a a game-tying home run in the uh, eighth inning. Uh, They eventually would win the game. So he's doing it under pressure, and it was the third game in a row that he'd homered. It's amazing. And not to mention that every baseball fan in Japan is following his every move. So not only does he have pressure here in America, he's got the pressure of his entire baseball-following nation on his shoulders it really is it really is incredible what he does it's, it's unprecedented and you know if you go back to Babe Ruth you know they didn't have the training as well they didn't have the diet some guys the guys at the top maybe kept themselves in shape but the guys at the bottom the bottom half of the league they weren't nearly the athletes that the guys are these days as well yeah that's a fair point that's a fair point who's your uh your all-time favorite guy from prior to 1920, and it could be just because of their name or their nickname, which seemed to be more prevalent then. Yeah, you know, I'm a big old Haas Radbort fan. Mm-hmm. Go back and look at old Haas, picked for Providence in the 1880s. Old Haas. Old Haas, yeah, yeah. This guy's throwing 500 innings in a year, year after year. He's a Hall of Famer. Was old, was old Haas actually old, or was he like 26 when everyone else was 23? He died at 42, so... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, okay. he wasn't real old. Yeah, in 1884, Old Haas won 60 games and threw 678 innings. So uh. <laughs> yeah. That's why I like some of the old nicknames, and it, it does give you a, a feel for how not only the games evolved, but how uh, we've evolved a, as a, as the human race in that we just saw the Yankees in town, and Aaron Judge and Giancarlo Stanton like tilt the field when they come out six seven, six eight, you know, strapped, and they're two seventy, no no fat on them. And Walter Big Train Johnson, look him up. I I don't I think he was barely over six feet tall, but he was the Big Train. Yeah, I think you. I think they called his fastball was the Big Train. Is that what it was? Okay, I always got the feeling like. He wasn't yeah. that big a guy. None of those guys were that big. If you were six foot, you were a really big dude back then. 
Yeah, pretty wild. All right, with Rockies, as I, as I let you depart, your favorite Rockies over the last, well, since their inception in 93 and why? And it doesn't have to be clearly like, oh, Helton. You know, we all love Helton and, and Walker. We know who the greats are. Yeah. Uh, my favorite Rocky of all time is DJ LeMahieu. We just saw him, and it breaks my heart that he's a Yankee as a lifelong Mets fan. So it's, it's a little harder now. But I just love the way DJ plays the game, the way he goes about his business, the way he, the way he doesn't run his mouth. He lets his play on the field do it. He's a leader. He's exactly the kind of guy you want in your team. You know, he's, he's the kind of guy, if you got DJ on your team, your team's way better than it was without DJ. Yeah, that's well put. And, and that's that's to simplify it. DJ is a winning player in everything uh, he does. Um, I, I want to get your quick opinion because I went off on this earlier. You and I were Met fans growing up and had – Strong disdain for the Yankees, even though, as you know, my late dad, who you who you knew well, grew up two blocks from Yankee Stadium on Grand, on the Grand Concourse. Hated the Yankees. Walked across the uh, Harlem River to uh, the Polo Grounds, watched the Giants play, and then then adopted the Mets. And for me, not quite back to the Roy White, Horace Clark days, but this Yankee team is really underwhelming. Even if Aaron Judge is healthy in the lineup, obviously it's much better when he's healthy. But just watching them over the weekend, I said to myself, they're not good. They're, they're probably fortunate to be six, seven games over 500. That's kind of what I thought, too. Judge really, with Judge, they're a much better team, obviously. If you got somebody who's capable of hitting 50 home runs every year, that's really going to help your team. But yeah, they really rely on the long ball more than more than is good for a team to do. If they're not hitting home runs, they're not winning ball games. Uh, it's that simple for them. Their bullpen is pretty leaky. The starting rotation has some real solid guys, but it's kind of up and down as well. So, yeah, you know, my dad was also a Yankees fan, Drew, and uh, for my fourth birthday, he took me to a Mets game, and I became a Mets fan there. Rusty Staub, Legrand Oran, took the game-winning home run. So for my fifth birthday, I asked him for a Mets hat for his uh, for my birthday. He came home from work, gave me the hat, put it on my head, I took a look. I said, Dad, this is a Yankees hat. He said, oh, sorry, Doug. It's my mistake. And uh, it was on. <laughs> well, you you remind me of my oldest, Jacob, who uh, has a little bit or a lot of bit of contrarian in them. So the fact that your dad was a Yankee fan and you jumped on the Mets bandwagon as a four-year-old does not shock me knowing you. Yeah, it was his mistake. He took me to the Mets game because they were in town. You should have waited. Should have waited to the Yankees game. You know what, Jake, Jacob? Jacob, when he was when he was four and five, honest to God, we you were with me doing Nugget games, and um, and the Nuggets weren't real good back then. And um, he would be there with with, uh, with with Chris and and his little brothers, and Gabe was a baby, and he would be rooting at times for the other team. I'm like, dude, what are you doing? And he just would have that little snicker on his face, even as a five-year-old. And uh, he did eventually jump on board. I, I, I was able to convert him, and he's still yeah. – I know Jacob well. That doesn't surprise me. Yeah, no, not, no, not at all. There you go. Hey, Doug, I'll see you in a couple hours, man, at the yard, and uh, we'll break down the world champion uh, Houston Astros at Dusty Baker. Keep up the great work, brother, and uh, and 
Don't let anybody call you an accountant. All right. I appreciate it, Drew. Thanks for having me. So many great stories uh, with Doug. You know, he doubles as our, you know, floor director in the booth, which means, you know, he's making sure that we have all our promotional reads, which is much easier now than it was back in the past where they're all on cards. Now they're, you know, they're on a, an iPad, but he makes sure that, you know, we have all of those. And there's a lot of laughter, believe me, during <laughs> in between innings and before games and, and after games. And it used to be, and I've gotten much better, uh, in this regard, but I used to cut things really, really tight. And I've kind of turned over a new leaf, really worked on it over the last couple of years, give myself more lead time in everything I do rather than redlining. Well, there were several occasions where one in particular comes to mind, especially when we used to wear suits regularly, where Doug was, after I got wired up, I'm now literally, because I cut it too close, talking on the air, off camera, albeit, but welcoming everybody into the ballpark. And Doug is helping put on my jacket at the same time that I'm with my one free hand and wiggling in to the other sleeve with the other, you know, arm, welcoming again everybody to Cincinnati or Denver, wherever the heck we were. And then, uh, you know, you, you see us on camera and you didn't know that like eight seconds earlier, uh, you know, Doug was like a tailor uh, trying to jam me in a jacket. But uh, anyhow, our relationship goes way back and uh, always a big tip of the cap and, uh, you know, a salute uh, with a with a, a beer mug to Doug. Before we uh, check on out, wanted to make mention what a great Wimbledon final. Carlos Alcaraz against... Novak Djokovic. I mean, it was a, an instant classic. It goes five sets, nearly five hours. Marvelous tennis. And Djokovic went down to the kid. He's 16 years younger, Alcaraz is, than, than Djokovic. And Djokovic, for me and for many, is the greatest tennis player of all time. He's got 23 Grand Slam titles. Um, probably should have a couple of more. But he went down. He said the better player won. Alcaraz has now won a couple. He won the U.S. Open last September, and uh, he'll be the number one seed this September as well. I hope they get to play again, uh, perhaps uh, in another final uh, coming up. But uh, it was great tennis, man. Love Wimbledon. Love major events, right? Got the British Open coming up this week. And I'm all in on Rory. You know, back home, just won the Scottish Open. Rory's gone nine years since his last major, and I hope he's able to put it together uh, in the UK, uh, of course, where he hails from, and um, that would be great theater as well. All right, enjoyed our conversation as always this week. We'll do it again in seven days. Take care, stay safe, everybody. Talk to you soon. (laughs) 